so far from the truth because if you were using sex toys, any sort of if HPV, like I said earlier, it's a fomite. It can be on surfaces. It can if you're it. It can be on fingers. If you're using your sexual organs, you need to be screened for HPV. Just like I said, this virus does not discriminate. Doesn't care what type of sex you're having. If you're using your sexual organs and your sexual parts, whatever parts they are, whatever parts you were born with, you should be HPV screened. And we as providers need to make our patients feel comfortable, letting them know that it's we're not judging. There is no shame. The more we know, the better we can help you. Welcome to America's number one sexuality podcast, Dr. Sex Fairy. I am Dr. Kavul Bhava, America's favorite sex doctor, and I am here to transform your life. Many of you asked why the Dr. Sex Fairy podcast was only an audio podcast. And so, by popular demand, here we are as an audio and video podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Dr. Sex Fairy, as well as subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode tackles a topic at the intersection of sexual health and public awareness, HPV, oral sex, and throat cancer. You may have heard of high-profile cases like that of actor Michael Douglas, who openly shared his battle with throat cancer and its connection to oral sex. These revelations have brought attention to the relationship between certain sexual behaviors and the prevalence of HPV or human papillomavirus in our society. In this episode, we are going to demystify this complex issue. We will explore the science behind HPV, how it can be transmitted through oral sex, and the potential risk of developing throat cancer. We will also discuss essential prevention measures, such as vaccination and regular screenings, that can help safeguard your sexual health and that of your children. This is a conversation that deserves your attention, and my goal is to provide you with the knowledge and insights you need to make informed decisions. My guest today is respected South Florida-based, fellowship-trained infectious disease specialist, Dr. Patrick Kenny. He practices at the world-renowned Cleveland Clinic, my alma mater. And here's a fun fact. Dr. Kenny and I were in the same medical school class. We sat together in our short white coats, studied for tests together, and then life took us in different directions for residency and medical practice. Over 20 years after we first met, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Kenny, my friend Patrick, to the Dr. Sex Fairy podcast. Welcome, Dr. Kenny. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. 20 years after we met in medical school, here we are. Um, and how did we get younger looking? We are just so fabulous. Peter Panza, we are. Exactly. And now you are vice chair of infectious disease at the Cleveland Clinic. That yes, I love what I do, and it is such a pleasure to be able to practice one's passion. And it's such a prestigious post to have. Well, thank you very much. It, it, it's, it comes with experience as everything. Absolutely. So tell me, how common is HPV? HPV is very common. And it's one of the most common STIs in the country and around the world because 
everyone has sex for the most part. And the more sexual partners one has, studies show anyone who has more than five sexual partners in their life has been exposed to some strain of HPV. So why is this so prevalent? It's because most people don't have symptoms. And when they don't have symptoms, they can easily spread this virus unknowingly to a, to a partner who has not been exposed. And there are a few reasons behind that. One is that the virus is so tiny that it can pass through um, any barriers like a condom or um, uh, dental dams, things like that. There are things that we as, um, we as providers should um, educate our patients on. I know we're going to go into that in a little bit. How can we screen for HPV? There are a few ways. Number one, um, so H, we have to know before screening for HPV, we have to know why HPV attacks the areas in which it attacks. HPV is a virus that likes to attach um, a type of tissue called squamous epithelium. And squamous epithelium is located in a few places in the body. It's located in the head and neck, um, in the, so the back of the throat, the oral pharynx, um, in women in the cervical area, in men and women in the um, rectal and anal area, and also in men in the, in the area of the penis and testicles. So wherever this virus lands, this virus does not discriminate. It, it can cause changes at a cellular level that can lead to something called dysplasia. And dysplasia is a, just a change in the um, structure of the, ce- of the cells in that area. And, that's, and that change can lead to certain cutaneous issues like warts or even cancers, depending on the strain of HPV that's causing the problem. Um, so with that, we need to have um, routine head and neck screenings mostly at our dental offices. You know, most people go to their dentist um, at least twice a year for routine dental screenings. It is important that we ask our dental colleagues to screen our uh, patients regularly and to make sure that we're getting a, a thorough um, screening of the inside of the mouth, making sure that they're palpating the neck to see if there are any uh, palpable lumps or bumps, anything of any concern um, for our uh, female or um, Anyone assigned female at birth, really, anyone who has a vagina and a cervix needs to have a pap smear done um, once, you know, um, you know, regularly once a year, especially if they're sexually active, um, because HPV, again, does not discriminate. And these are screenings that can be done regularly um, for anyone who practices anal sex. Um, we need to do what's anal pap smears, and those can be done every year. And I can't tell you how many patients I have, uh, you know, have found uh, positive screenings for that have been uh, precursors for for anal cancer, as well as, unfortunately, some anal cancers. But luckily, we were found early enough that could be resected and cured. So it's very important that we screen those areas. So basically, anywhere where HPV lands, knowing the landmarks where it can attach, those areas need to be screened. So we need to, um, it takes a village, as they say. It does take a village. And I can honestly tell you, I don't remember them teaching us about anal swabs for HPV during medical school. They did not. I actually learned about this in my fellowship. And anal dysplasia is something that really came about from uh, these high profile cases that you discussed, like Michael Douglas. Once we realized, you know, if head and neck cancers can be um, related to HPV, what would, what would then 
stop it from attack from being um affecting the anal area? What would stop it? So that's where it's like, well, the only way we really can check is if we do a brushing. And if we and so it's actually a much easier procedure to do than um a vaginal pap smear. And it's something that you just have to educate your patients on. And you know, because you bring up this idea of anal pap smear and they're like, what are you you're gonna do what? <laughs> hey, hey, you're gonna do what? And and I just explain why. And then once you explain the why, most patients are like, you know, absolutely, I don't want to deal with any sort of anal cancer or any cancer for that matter. So let's do it. And when they get that negative result, they're very happy. And if they do get a positive result, we are able to get them to the specialists that are able to assist them. And that's a wonderful thing. It is a marvelous thing. And we're very lucky to practice in a in a in an area where we have those special those specialists that can help us. And I'm sure they're very grateful because I can tell you from personal experience that I was misdiagnosed with breast cancer for over three and a half years. I found the lump in my breast, told my doctors, and was blown off anyway. And it was misread on the mammogram too. That is that is a shame and it should never happen. Should never happen, but it does. And so I am so happy that there are physicians like you who are preemptively testing for these things. Yes, it, 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 because ultimately at the end of the day, we're all people. And if someone's coming to you, if a patient comes to you with something that's concerning them, they, a patient knows his or her body the best and something's different, you need to pay attention to that and make sure you do the proper diagnostic screenings and, and exams to make sure that this is not cancer. If it's not, if it's just a, if it's just a benign mass, great. But if it's not, you, you, we can act on it. We have the technology. It's a shame if we don't do that. It's, it, there are a lot of things I could say. Yes. <laughs> there are a lot of things I could say, but I won't. But um, ultimately, we as physicians and providers need to be able to do the first thing, and that's listen. And once we listen, then uh, we can then help our patient, which is the ultimate. You made me think about my dental exams. Mm-hmm. And I just realized, sitting here in this moment, that no dentist has ever checked my lymph nodes or done really any exam beyond cavities, cleanings, the usual stuff? Then this is a point where you can respectfully ask and say, um, are you performing an oral cancer screening today? If, if no, why not? And may I have one, please? It's not, it's, I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's a difficult thing to ask. And by doing that, you can have your dental provider screen patients on a more regular it's unfortunate how many opportunities we miss to diagnose people. It, it's 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 astounding. Your own case as a as a an example, and you know I can tell you, we can sit here for hours and discuss cases where you know where things could have been done differently. And medicine is an art. We learn, and you have to. Anyone has to learn from those instances. And if by using this platform that we have. We can educate others and really encourage people to be their own advocate. And if you weren't an advocate for yourself, who knows what would have happened? Who knows? But thank goodness we're not there. We're not there. Yes. Exactly. Yes. So let's get back to HPV. Absolutely. How can we treat it? 
So it really just depends on how the infection is manifested. If it's manifested as warts, there are topical solutions that, that we can prescribe to um, help get rid of them. They basically melt away. They can be uh, cauterized off, uh, of course, with the use of um, electric cautery equipment and the use of masks. Because one thing about HPV that um, is not well known is that it's a fomite, meaning that it can... When it's, when it's burnt, it can be aerosolized. And so any provider that's performing cautery, uh, a cautery on these lesions, you want to make sure that you're masked because those fomites can then go into the airway and cause HPV infections of the upper respiratory system of the provider. Absolutely. So it's very, very, very um, important that we, that we, that we have per, um, personal protective equipment when doing that. Also... Um, as far as treatments for um, cervical HPV, um, our wonderful uh, uh, gynecologic uh, our wonderful gynecology colleagues, they can do cautery, they can do leap procedures. These are not, you know, as a, I've only seen them done as a man. I can only, I can sympathize and empathize that it does not look very comfortable. However, they are curative and they are very, very helpful in getting rid of HPV infections in the cervix. Um, in the anal area, um, if a patient tests, if the patient screens positive on an anal pap, what I normally do is I recommend them to one of our esteemed colorectal surgical colleagues where they do, where they undergo a procedure called a high resolution endoscopy. And that high resolution endoscopy is when they actually, um, use a speculum and dilate the anal area. Um, and they basically take a look inside um, and use a, a solution, a vinegar-based solution, and actually look with a special light to see if those areas change um, color because HPV will turn, HPV-affected tissues will look white in this particular light. Those areas can be ablated and biopsied. And usually ablation and cautery are the, the main forms of treatment. Now, unfortunately, if this virus has led to squamous cell a carcinoma of that particular area, then we need to um, uh, involve our uh, hematology and oncology colleagues for treatment. Luckily, HPV-associated squamous cell carcinomas are very, very receptive to chemotherapy and radiation. So they are, uh, this, obviously, the sooner we get the diagnosis, the sooner the patient gets into treatment, the, the better off they will be. But um, anyone will, any of my oncology colleagues will tell you that HPV associated squamous cell cancers tend to have very good response rates to chemotherapy and adjuvant, adjuvant uh, radiation. There are multiple strains of HPV. And so it's impossible for us to vaccinate against all of them. So we have to vaccinate against the ones that are the most troublesome. So we have a vaccine that's available for the, for the prevention of HPV. It's been um, uh, indicated in uh, adolescence from the ages of 9 to 26. However, it is very, very acceptable to um, provide HPV vaccination to patients over the age of 26. I myself, I did not uh, get HPV vaccinated until much later in life, just because I, by the time this vaccine was um, available, I was over the age of 26. So I did it anyway, and I'm very, and I always offer it to my patients. And it's something that we should all offer our patients. If they have not been vaccinated for HPV, it is something that we should 
offer that because it's something easy to give and it's just as effective. I've heard that recently insurances have started covering HPV vaccination for older adults into their 40s. As they should. So anything, anything in this country that is um, pay, reimbursed by insurance, a lot of that has to be backed by science. So there have been many studies, uh, retrospective as well as randomized controlled studies that have shown that HPV vaccination after the age of 26 has been effective in reducing HPV transmission and HPV-associated uh, skin conditions as well as um, HPV-associated HPV cancers. So what would your insurance rather pay for, a vaccine or nine months of a chemotherapy and radiation? I think the choice is obvious. It's obvious. What are the unique challenges you see your LGBTQ plus population facing? Thank you for asking me that. So in the LGBTQ plus population, there are varying barriers to healthcare. And, and that can be for personal reasons, patients' fear of judgment, patients' fear of disclosing what's, what they do sexually, especially if a patient is on maybe their parents' insurance and they don't want to tell um, the provider what they're doing or what these screening tests are, or what these medications are, because they're going to get an explanation of benefits that they don't want to have to explain to their parents, which, you know, we could, but ultimately the biggest thing, the biggest challenges I see, especially um, in anyone who is assigned female at birth, like I said earlier, if you have a vagina and you have a cervix, you need to have HPV screening. I have Many, many lesbian patients and friends and colleagues who are so behind on their HPV screening because they feel, oh, since I'm not having penetrative sex with a man, I, I don't need to be screened. And it is so far from the truth because if you're using sex toys, any sort of if HPV, like I said earlier, it's a fomite. It can be on surfaces. It can, if you're, it, it can be on fingers. If you're using your sexual organs, you need to be screened for HPV. Just like I said, this virus does not discriminate, doesn't care what type of sex you're having. If you're using your sexual organs and your sexual parts, whatever parts they are, whatever parts you were born with, you should be HPV screened. And we as providers need to make our patients feel comfortable letting them know that it's, we're not judging. There is no shame. The more we know, the better we can help you. And so um, I can't tell you how many um, squamous cell cancers I have found in my lesbian patients. And, my, and I can, I'm sure if we talk to our GYN colleagues, I'm sure they're seeing that as well. And our role as providers and the privilege that we have as physicians to be able to talk to a patient and give them that information, give them that advice. We can save a life just by having a simple conversation. So men who have sex with men, I believe, are a bit ahead of the curve just because of the um, HIV preventative uh, course that we have for and with the, with the routine STI screenings that they go through, which we will discuss in a later episode. But ultimately, as physicians, we are so privileged that we are able to have that sacred doctor-patient bond. And one thing 
that we as physicians can do is really just make our patients feel comfortable by asking those personal questions with a with non-judgmental uh, attitude and let them know that they can trust us. Patients will feel more trustworthy of us if they feel that we're coming from a non-judgmental point of view. Thank you so much for saying that because I agree with you on every one of those points because we owe it to our patients to give them the care they deserve and our patients should in turn trust us so that we can help them if they're not honest with us, if they're not telling us exactly where they've been. It's hard to help them fully. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you, Dr. Kenny. It was wonderful having you on the Dr. Sex Fairy podcast, and we're going to do part two of this and talk about STIs next time. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you found our discussion on HPV, oral sex, and throat cancer informative and thought-provoking. Remember, knowledge is power when it comes to your sexual health. And so I encourage you to take the information you've gained today and share it with others by forwarding them a link to this episode. Together, we can raise awareness and promote responsible sexual practices to protect ourselves and our loved ones. A special thank you to our guest, Dr. Patrick Kenny, for sharing his expertise and insights on this critical topic. It is always a pleasure to reconnect with old friends and colleagues who share a passion for educating and helping others. Thank you, as always, for spending time with me on yet another wonderful episode of the Dr. Sex Fairy podcast. If you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to leave questions and comments. I will answer them personally. Make sure you like this video and subscribe to my channel, Dr. Sex Fairy, so that you never miss a video. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or elsewhere, do subscribe to the Dr. Sex Fairy podcast. We have more great content and guests to come. Check out my super hit TikTok account, Dr. Sex Fairy, and my Instagram, The Real Dr. Sex Fairy. Until next time.